Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. It's Friday, April 14th, 2023. There's no state budget yet, though the fiscal year started on April 1st. So what? Does it matter? <laughs> the leaders in Albany have passed two budget extenders, as we call them, to pay the state's bills, make sure that state employees are paid, and so forth as they continue to negotiate what will be a roughly $230 billion budget for what is now the current fiscal year, and they need to get that in and passed relatively soon in order for there to be more stability around state funding for schools and many other things, and the budget will include a lot of policy decisions. We just don't know exactly what ones yet. In Albany, the two Democratic supermajorities of the state legislature and the state assembly and the state Senate and Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul are continuing to negotiate that budget deal. Hochul is negotiating her second budget as governor and her first since winning a term of her own in the election this past fall in a closer than expected race with Republican Lee Zeldin. And she's negotiating right now with the legislature after the major defeat of her first nominee to be the state's next chief judge, Hector LaSalle, was rejected in a confirmation process by the state Senate. Hochul just made her second nomination for chief judge, a candidate, Rowan Wilson, who's currently on the state's top court, the Court of Appeals, who is much more favorable, more liberal, to state senators and likely to be confirmed soon. Those are among the many interesting and fraught political dynamics at play here as the three sides negotiate the new budget. One of the big question marks in Albany under a new era that really began in 2019 is how much power Together, the two Democratic majorities of the legislature are wielding against the governor, whether it was Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo for those last couple of years he was in office, or now Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul. She has ushered in a new era of more collegiality, less bullying, but also less hardball politics, less seeming ability to really ram through some of her top priorities. But there's a lot of TBD because we need to see what's in this first budget of her term of her own. She has named as top priorities public safety with a big focus on more changes to the bail law. And she released in January, as we've been talking about on the show quite a lot, a massive, ambitious, very important, very interesting and controversial housing plan. Those were her two top priorities, public safety and housing, coming into this year. She released her State of the State agenda. She released her executive budget. There are many other priorities in her agenda, but she put those two at the front, and they've been at the front of the stalling and halting and struggling state budget negotiations. But there is a whole other big list of issues and funding being negotiated. More on that in just a second. But there are really interesting political and governmental dynamics going on in Albany. My guests today to discuss the late state budget and those political dynamics are two veterans of covering New York state politics, two great guests I'm happy to bring together here. Liz Benjamin, now managing director at Marathon Strategies, is a former reporter and television host with more than two decades of experience covering New York State and New York City government and politics. And Ken Lovett, now a partner at i Strategies, spent three decades as a reporter, all of them, virtually all of them, covering New York State politics, including as the Daily News' Albany bureau chief for more than a decade. So they will join me in just a minute. Liz Benjamin, Ken Lovett, to discuss 
the fascinating dynamics going on in Albany as the state budget is negotiated. Again, this budget will be somewhere in the neighborhood of $230 billion with lots of funding decisions that are very important to New Yorkers. Many, many policy decisions also important to New Yorkers, some of which do and don't have fiscal implications. So they will be with me in just a moment for a discussion of what's going on. As I mentioned, bail reform and other criminal justice policies and funding are at the top of the negotiations, housing policy, funding, a whole sweep of the governor's ambitious agenda and what the legislature will and won't do also at the top of the list. Then there's a huge additional list of topics, tax rates, including personal income tax rates for the wealthiest New Yorkers and highest earners, uh, corporate tax rates, a variety of tax and spend mechanisms that are key to deciding how much money is the state going to have and be uh, spending and also be putting into savings for the next uh, fiscal setback. Huge discussions and deliberations happening around climate and energy policies that will go a long way to determining the state's future around uh, greenhouse gas emissions, climate policies, renewable energy policies, uh, and related items. They are debating a raise of the minimum wage. It seems guaranteed that there will be a mechanism in this new budget to raise the minimum wage, although if they can't agree on the details, maybe it falls out of the budget. But there's a lot of agreement on raising the minimum wage in the state. There's just questions about what to increase it to and when exactly to start an inflation tied system and what that system will look like for increasing it uh, basically in continuum without having to revisit it all the time, although they could always make tweaks. Those are just a few things. The two biggest sections of the state budget are always local education funding and Medicaid spending. So those two things and related policies are also being discussed, including a a relatively small piece of the larger education discussion, but a very important and politically fraught one, which is whether, as the governor wants, the state will raise the charter school cap for New York City. Uh, There is also big questions about how to fund the MTA and to fill its billion-dollar-plus annual operating deficit uh, and other related transit, public transit, MTA-related policies. That also gets at questions related to funding and New York City's fiscal future because, like with the MTA, there are a number of other issues where Governor Hochul wants to shift some costs onto the city or cut some state funding to the city. And there's a variety of policy issues where Mayor Eric Adams of New York City has been pushing back or supporting the governor, but wanting funding to come with certain policies. We've got a whole bunch of rundown at Gotham Gazette on that dynamic, the mayor's Albany agenda, and much more. So I'll leave the list there. It's a long one. We've covered it all at Gotham Gazette. You can find our reporting on the major issues to watch and much more. And of course, our colleagues uh, writing and uh, publishing on the state budget at many other outlets also have lots of great coverage. Before we get to our discussion today with Liz Benjamin and Ken Lovett, just quickly, if you've missed any of our recent episodes here of Max Politics, you can find them all at the Gotham Gazette website or wherever you get podcasts under Max Politics. Recent guests have included the New York State Housing Commissioner, Ruth Ann Visnowskis, Governor Hochul's housing commissioner, to talk about this state housing plan that she helped craft that the governor and her team and Commissioner Visnowskis are now trying to negotiate a deal on with the legislature. Prior to that, I had on New York State Senate Finance Chair, State Senator Liz Kruger of Manhattan, to discuss the Senate's one-house budget resolution and budget negotiations, and a bunch of other interesting guests, some of which are not focused on state politics and government, including, for example, uh, a few weeks back, United Federation of Teachers President Mike Mulgrew, of course, has serious interests in what happens in Albany, but also uh, you know, focused on how New York City schools are being run, contract negotiations with the city and so forth. I've recently, in recent weeks and months, interviewed uh, four of the New York City borough presidents about what's going on in their boroughs and their agendas and many other great guests. So again, find those all at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. And at GothamGazette.com, you can, of course, find all of that good reporting that I mentioned. We've got a new piece out 
uh, today as we speak here on Friday, April 14th on the negotiations and proposals related to CUNY funding in the New York State and New York City budget processes and a bunch of other interesting pieces recently related to uh, New York City budget discussions around parks and other issues. Uh, We just published a piece about the coming opening of the Union Square Tech Hub that has been delayed amid COVID but seems to be finally coming online uh, in the coming months and much more. All right. So with me today to discuss the late state budget, the power dynamics in Albany, key issues being negotiated and more, including some of their tales from the depths of Albany budget seasons past Mm. are Liz Benjamin. Managing Director at Marathon Strategies, a former reporter with more than two decades of experience covering New York State and city government and politics, including 10 years at the Albany Times Union, several years at the New York Daily News, and eight years as the host of Capital Tonight on Spectrum News and editor of the show's excellent State of Politics blog. Liz, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And Ken Lovett partner at i Strategies and formerly a senior advisor at the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, the MTA. And before that, three decades as a reporter, including 25 years covering New York state politics, a decade plus as the Daily News Albany Bureau Chief, and more than eight years as the Albany correspondent for the New York Post. Two heavyweights of the New York political world here with tremendous experience to draw on as we discuss the New York state budget negotiations that are ongoing here in April 2023 and their broader context. Liz, Ken, thanks for being here. Let's jump right in. So, Ken, start us off. What does it mean that the budget's late? They passed a couple extenders. Um, The state's bills are getting paid. State employees are getting paid. Uh, the governor says, you know what, the most important thing is getting a good budget. Um, Former Governor Andrew Cuomo came into office at a much more chaotic time in state government and was laser focused on on on-time budgets. Government can really function again. Mm. Um, Does it, what does it mean here that the budget is at least a couple weeks late? Anything? To the public at large, in terms of the impact, not much. Uh, The one thing the lawmakers and the governors of the past had done uh, really well, actually, is they managed to take a lot of the pain out of a late state budget. So, for instance, as you said, there's budget extenders. So the agencies are getting their money. The, there's no government shutdown. Uh, schools used to worry that they weren't going to get their funding. But uh, along the way, they learned to spin up funding when if, if it was too late. Uh, They would spin up funding from the next budget over to the school so they didn't lose it. So there's no hit, which is partially a a reason there's not a lot of political pressure other than uh, the the narrative, you know, a return to dysfunction. Albany had, Mm -hmm. you know, 20 plus state budgets that were late. And, you know, as you said, you know, Andrew Cuomo was always focused on we're going to show that things work differently. Um, so but but the reality is no one has ever been thrown out of office because of state uh, late state budgets. Twenty one mm. straight years of late state budgets. No, no one lost an election because of it. Yeah, true. Into I mean, in the battle days when Kenny and I were you know covering budgets, it was like it wasn't just late. It was like August, September, you know, really, really late. Um, but there are two casualties here, uh, which I don't think we can really overlook. No one feels the pain except for the state lawmakers who don't get paid. Yeah. So, um, and that's an interesting thing that actually was a vestige of the Pataki era because it was a trade that Pataki made in exchange for charter schools, if I remember correctly. And pay raises. And pay raises. That was part right. of the pay raise. That's right. Which which is actually critical because, you know, one of the raps on Kathy Hochul is that she's not adequately using her power. Uh, The budget presents the most significant moment for a governor that we have an incredibly powerful state executive in New York. And Andrew Cuomo was like uber powerful, but that was because of his own approach, which we'll leave for a different moment. But in terms of the budget, you know, the le- the executive proposes and the legislature disposes. But because of Pataki v. Silver, there were a lot of um, 
things that the legislature can't do. They cannot strike. They cannot create their own policy. One of their big beefs is that the governors keep stuffing policy unrelated to the budget, like bail, for example, which I'm sure we'll get to our housing, though housing has some attendant um, budget spends related to it. So, you know, she could very well do the Patterson thing and stuff her executive proposal into the extenders and say, you choose between shutting down the government and taking my proposal. That's what you get. You get this or you get shut down, which there would be, you know, there would be some backlash for from that. In the old days, governor uh, lawmakers understood that the budget was going to be late and they bought extra underwear and they took out lines of credit and they did all these things. We got a lot of new lawmakers, young lawmakers who I don't think now they just got a big pay raise. So they're getting more money than they did before. Maybe they put it aside, but I don't think they know how to manage this situation. So in terms of internal pressure um, on the leaders, that might also be happening. But so the casualties are the lawmakers own paychecks, but the hit to Kathy Hochul's reputation as a powerful leader. But but I do think that is why she's holding out, because I think she knows politically, for instance, bail reform. You can argue the merits, not that, you know, whether really needed or not. It is a huge political issue. She knows if she can get the bail reform package and hold out for it, that more people will give her credit for that than will take away for having a late budget. She's doing, I don't understand her negotiation tactic, I gotta say. She's doing the same thing she did the last time that we came around on bail, which is like adding a poison pill at the end. Hello, Discovery, let's do Discovery Mm. while we're Mm -hmm. talking about bail, let's talk about Discovery. It's like, where the hell did that come from? And it's now the 11th hour and you're throwing that into the mix? You know, and also the housing plan, I mean, everybody recognizes, and in full disclosure, I've you know, clients in the housing space and so understand this this world perhaps, you know, a little bit more in depth than than the average bear. But everybody gets that there's affordable housing crisis in this state. Everybody gets that there are communities across the state who have not done their fair share in uh, accepting affordable housing development and even in some cases have actively repelled affordable housing development. And something needs to be done. And this idea that we'll just give them incentives is baloney because it hasn't worked up until this point. But that she's going to die on that hill when she knows that the suburbs hate it beyond. And she didn't do well in the suburbs when she ran against Zeldin is either incredibly bold or politically dumb. And I haven't figured out which one of those things it is, to be honest with you. Just on housing for a moment, I mean, it seems from the indications we're getting, especially from State Senate Majority Leader Andrew Stewart-Cousins, Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie, as always, is a bit more tight-lipped on things, um, but but Senate Majority Leader Stewart-Cousins giving, I think, some signposts of where, uh, you know, a deal might wind up there, that it starts with incentives, and maybe if there's not the targets being met on new housing development that the governor wants to see, then maybe eventually some quote unquote, sticks kick in eventually. That's sort of the signs I'm I'm hearing from the Senate Majority Leader in her comments where she says, you know, I don't really like to start with the sticks. So it sounds well, like, go ahead, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I don't want to read the tea leaves too much on, on a couple of comments from her because we just don't know exactly what the, in, you know, those internal right. conversations are like, but go ahead, Ken. No, from what you, what you portrayed out of the Senate, I think is 100% accurate. But the assembly, it's actually a bigger issue. And and I talked to a uh, one, one uh, top-level assembly uh, person who told me that it's a huge issue in the assembly. And, and he was actually pessimistic that it gets done, which surprised me. And, and I still think she has to walk away with some kind of housing deal. It's a, such a key issue. But but there is a huge hurdle. And and I know the thinking is, well, well this is going to hurt Long Island and Westchester, where the Senate majority mm-hmm. leader is. But they've lost so many seats on Long Island that if they've given that up to Senate, it's, it's less crucial for them than it would be for the assembly who has people across the entire state. And, and it'll be interesting to see how uh, it, it impacts the governor, because obviously bail reform was such a key issue. Uh, for so many people on Long Island, it, 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 a lot of people feel it impacted the races there with the Democrats losing. Then the question is, um, would that be enough to ameliorate the uh, house, any kind of housing package? Mm-hmm. So yeah, you're I mean, saying like bail reform cancels out housing? I said it's going to be interesting <laughs> to 
it does. No, I mean, yeah, I, I actually hadn't thought about it in that way in terms of that, like balance for the burbs. And that it's interesting. I, I don't know because the, the, the criminal justice issue, well, they're both so key and in some ways actually connected together, because if you talk about affordable and or supportive housing, then you're talking about individuals who have potential mental health challenges and or substance abuse, um, you know, needs and or um, other uh, services that they require in order to be successful. And, you know, communities really, particularly in suburban areas, have a history of rejecting them because of fear. Not to get too into the weeds on any of these things, but obviously bail reform and housing are the two things the governor led on, you know, led with. She she put bail reform in part of a larger public safety package. And we did a whole rundown at Gotham Gazette recently on sort of all the criminal justice stuff that's on the table. And it's funding for reentry services and it's it's bail tweaks and it's it's a bunch of other gun violence prevention, a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but she put public safety and housing as her two top priorities. And as you both say, you know, people are expecting, especially since those have clearly been the top two things being negotiated that are holding up a whole bunch of other things that I listed in the in the intro and more um, that she will have to show some results on those. I just don't think politically now she might be on bail doing what she thinks is the right thing. But I don't think I think politically, for the most part, the bail conversation has just sailed. Like if she gets in some tweaks uh, you know, some new changes. Look, I've taken more action on bail. I fixed the law. Now we got rid of this contradiction, all this stuff. I just don't know that in any sort of regular New York voters minds, uh, there's, there's a lot of like bringing people back. If you, if they've already made a conclusion about, you know, Albany Democrats messed up on bail reform, we, we, we won't get into now, uh, the narratives around that and what's right and what's wrong, but just in terms of the politics of it, I just don't know if she's um, has any I don't know if she's has any uh, illusions that she might be able to really shift the narrative even by getting more changes. But what she might be able to do is actually stop all the headlines that come about repeat offenders back out and some of these things where if there's more people again, we could you know debate the merits of it. But if there's more people getting jailed pretrial who are repeat offenders, alleged repeat offenders, et cetera, um, you know, maybe it stops some of the sort of drumbeat of those headlines, although there's always headlines about crime. Right. You, so. you know, what's crazy. Like, what's crazy again is like, I don't understand. And I'm sure there's someone smarter than me on the second floor who gets it. But the the battles that this administration has picked are so quixotic to me. And, you know, the side battle that's occurring sort of parallel to this budget about the chief judge and the high court, which is really coloring a lot of, you know, I don't think we can have a conversation about the budget without having that conversation to some degree, because it's so soured the relationship in particular between this is the Senate. Now the assembly has nothing to do with it really, but now the assembly is pulled into the mix with legislative proposals to dramatically change the way the process uh, Mm. for selecting chief justices, for selecting high court justices and subsequently the chief judge uh, is is uh, occurs is really kind of mind boggling to me. But then you think about things that New Yorkers care about, like Kenny said, like the average New Yorker, do they give a hoot whether or not the budget's late as long as they're life isn't terribly impacted. It's like when the federal government shuts down, everybody's like, oh, huh, it wor- yeah, this is great. Like, who cares, right? So it's the same, similar to as long as my, my tax bill goes out at the right time and I, you know, I can still drive on the road and there's a cop there and like, you know, whatever is happening, it doesn't terribly mu- much affect me unless I'm a state worker not getting paid or what have you, then, then I'm okay. The average New Yorker doesn't know about judge selection or the high court mm-hmm. or, you know, any of this. And if it comes down to a constitutional amendment that that has to be passed twice and then subsequently by a public referendum related to the selection process, I don't know that most New Yorkers give anything like two hoots. The things they yep. do care about, she seems to be on potentially the wrong side of or, or the right side of but late. <laughs> well, listen, I know you want to jump in, Ken. I just want to say on housing, you know, I think this. It's just reminding me because of 
the chief, the chief judge battle that the first one was lost. Now it looks like she's basically, you know, giving the state Senate the type of chief judge nominee that they wanted in the first place. So it'll be more successful, likely the second time with Rowan Wilson. But but uh, her election campaign, the LaSalle chief judge battle, housing, other things, it just seems like there's um, uh, some real struggles in the Hochul world, whether it's campaign administration around getting out ahead of mm -hmm. certain narratives about building certain relationships about, you know, putting ducks in a row politically before making an announcement, all these types of things that are the real nuts and bolts of saying, I I'm going to get my priorities, uh, accomplished, um, seem to really be a, a challenge. And, you know, to, to me, there's always going to be pushback on some, a, a big sweeping ambitious housing agenda like this, of course, sure. especially on Long Island. But sure. the way that it was approached just seems to have really left her in, in big trouble here for what she might get done. Of why her take ambitions. it on all at once? Like, why Whoa. can't you just take it on one at a time? You need to do all of this all at once. You're going to lose on every front. You're not even focused. It's like a spaghetti at the wall kind of approach. Because I think this is a critical time for her. Um, given what you said, Ben, you know, there, there were issues about last year's budget, although I would argue she had more successes than she's given credit for last year. But part and then there was the judge issue. She got hit for giving away pay raise and getting nothing in return. Right. Uh, she got hit, you know, uh, for losing her judge and then putting a judge that literally a Senate uh, Democrat said to me, we got our person. So it wasn't even looked as the governor's chief judge. It was looked mm -hmm. as the Senate's chief judge. So the real power that she wields, especially now with Democrats controlling both houses, is the budget. So that's why she's taking on a lot of this. You know, you can argue it's the issues of the right ones politically, in some cases, policies in some cases. But one thing I'm surprised she hasn't done is she hasn't been selling it in in in, in trying to be the un-Cuomo. You know, Cuomo would have, when he did minimum wage, when he did certain issues, he did tours. He said, I'm, you know, he was out there banging the drum on this stuff and she'll do a press conference and say it. But he was out bringing the case to the public. She, you know, last year used the argument, I, I don't want to negotiate in public. So mm -hmm. when she did get bail changes last year, uh, it, it wasn't defined as a win for her because to the left, it didn't go. It was too much. And to the right, it didn't go far enough. So she got zero credit. And we're kind of going down that road again here. Um, but that's why I think she's going to hold out for as much as she can, because this narrative is building that it's the legislature running the show here. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you. She is, I wait, she is selling the housing thing, just to be clear. She has done she's done some. I mean, it's not look. Andrew Cuomo was a different animal altogether. Like, I don't think you can really measure people up against him. He was in for so long. He was so aggressive. I mean, leaving aside how he, you know, ended up and whatever, but it's just measuring him again, measuring his approach, you know, but, but like even going back to Pataki, I mean, he would definitely, he would have done a well, different. It's not, yeah. It's not even necessarily, I mean, of course, Cuomo was the most recent example. So there's comparison, but also it's not even about necessarily comparing to, it's just, what does it really take to get it sold, right? What does it take to get it done? And the idea that, I don't know, six six to eight events around the housing plan around the state is going to sort of cut it and, you know. It takes pre-building coalitions, to your exactly. point and exactly. to Kenny's point, I think that we've sort of the overarching theme yeah. here is like, it takes building a foundation in an intelligent way. I mean, you, if you go back to the LaSalle uh, uh, issue, it was clear a year ahead of time, labor did not want this guy, did yeah. not want Hector LaSalle. And for whatever reason, and there's been speculation and I have my own theories about it, but I don't know. Right. We she chose Hector LaSalle because she wanted to placate people because they wanted the first Latino chief judge because because who knows. But like she knew. And then subsequently, they she hadn't built a no case rollout. For the guy. Yeah. There was like nothing. And then by the time there was a case for him, it was too late. It was a too mess. Late. I also so, think she underestimated the legislature in that she felt if I go in and be nice after 12 years of being beaten down by Cuomo, that that they will appreciate that. 
And the legislature will always do what's best for the legislature, whether you're nice to them or not. So for all the years we heard how Cuomo was a tyrant, how Cuomo you know, had their th- his thumb on them. Now you hear she doesn't know how to close. She's, in, you know, now they're not mm-hmm. happy with her. And even if you subscribe to the uh, theme that they're running the show, you think they'd be happy about that. But even then they're not. They're still complaining that, oh, you know, she, they don't, they're nice people, but they don't know how to close deals. They're not doing enough. So I think she's going to have to, and, and she's trying to maybe with the late budget, she's got to readjust her, uh, her attitude toward them and realize that she's going to have to play hardball. And which, by the way, is why Cuomo wanted a Republican uh, or, or that's where I was just going. Yes. Senate but look. Split because the, the Republicans were so weak when they were in charge. Yeah. Uh, during his term that they had to deal. They knew that they had to deal. So he was able to play one house against the other and ultimately get the deals he needed. Um, Pataki just did it with the waiting game to get Shelly Silver to, uh, to to bend to certain things. And but- just, yeah, and Wait, just quickly before you jump in, Liz, I just, 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 you know, I think people do forget in some of these conversations that this trend started under Cuomo. Before yeah. he left, the legislature under two Democratic large yeah. majorities was already starting to play hardball with him. The way that the changes to the rent regulations went down in 2019 was like, he sort of just realized he had to go along with it to try to take some credit for it. You know, it was like, there were some real signs. And then obviously his exit was another big sign of this, that he, he, you know, he felt like the, you know, the assembly and the, and the full legislature was really against him. Liz, go ahead. Sorry. Well, two things. First of all, yes, Yes, I agree that the legislature is, you know, beating its chest and feeling itself. That's fine. But they have never overridden. They haven't. There hasn't been an override in like, I don't know, since George. Right. Right. I think. And and that and P.S. That was a Democrat, Shelley Silver and a Republican, Joe Bruno. Uh, you know, they they worked together when they had to. Right. And they cut some very interesting deals, the two of them. But so be that as it may. Mm-hmm. My understanding, I mean, I had lawmakers tell me, uh, you know, um, when they went in for the pay raise, they were ready to deal. They were ready to go in and cut a deal. They were ready for a pound of flesh. And she was like. No, it's okay. Cool. You can have this. Now you're the highest paid legislature in the entire nation, which optically looks like garbage, right? You're not even a full-time legislature technically, though. Yes, of course, you're doing constituent services when you're not around, et cetera. I get it. And yes, New York is a very expensive place to live, particularly in the five boroughs. And I understand all of it, but they were ready to deal. And she was like, no, we make decisions on the merits. And they were like, you're nuts, lady. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think some of them, right? Now, I, I it was they just- thought it would be, it would bring goodwill. That's what they thought. You know, we had a rough year and we'll give them a pay raise and that'll bring good. You could give them a lot of things, a pay raise. A pay raise is a is like caviar in a jar. (laughs) Right. There's like there's chocolate and then there's like, you know, caviar. You you didn't give them a nice card and and a rose. You gave them like the enchilada, like the big thing that they Mm -hmm. could possibly want. And you didn't deal for that. That's nutty. That's not how Planet Omni works. And they turned around on the judgeship. <laughs> but see, this is but this goes back to connect the pieces that we're talking about. If you're going to take that friendly, collaborative approach, then on things like the judgeship, you got to just either work it out ahead of time that I'm going to get my guy through. Or you say, you know what? I'm taking this collaborative approach. They have lots of power. I got to make sure that whoever I nominate, they're on board with, you know, like it's one of those two. You can't. You can't sort of try to have it both ways when you pick an issue. I mean, she, you know, she got through bail um, changes in the first budget, the Buffalo Bill Stadium thing. You know, I think both of those making the budget late last year um, soured some things a little bit. But I also think in the grand scheme of things, there's a lot of these things until the LaSalle battle that that were sort of like water under the bridge stuff, you know, that it that it hadn't gotten that intense yet, because for the most part, they agree on lots of priorities. Um, I only have you for a few more minutes here. So each of you, I don't know, give us give us one issue that's not bail reform and it's not the housing plan. You know, something interesting you're watching that these mm-hmm. things are taking up so much of the oxygen but they're obviously debating and negotiating so many things that will go into this budget. Um, 
What's what's one issue that you think is particularly interesting or you're hearing something interesting on or you, uh, you know, will see as another sort of test of a political dynamic? What's something, um, you know, that you're each watching closely uh, just to see maybe it's just about what the future, you know, for the future of the state? Uh, there's so many big issues being debated um, that, that it could be. But what's something you're keeping an eye on each of you? I mean, cannabis. Mm hmm. Uh, and you, and I, I also, I work with the medical cannabis association. So, you know, it's, uh, it's something that I take, I keep uh, an eye on obviously professionally, but I mean, that the promise of that, I think everybody agrees has not been realized and the potential in terms of the possibility for revenue, which the state needs desperately. And then the other thing is on a complete different scale, um, redevelopment in New York City, just because I happen to just be down there in the Penn Station area. And, you know, the idea that you would build, you know, X number more empty office buildings is just nutso. Like, mm -hmm. why? Why? So the recovery of New York City, I think, is so critical. It's the engine, unfortunately, for upstate hates it, but it's the economic engine that runs the state. And it's faltering. New York City is is faltering. And my father and I keep having this fight about it. Like he's like, uh, it's coming back. I'm like, okay, dad, but when? Like, uh, you know. I, I have to let you go in a minute. You just you just threw something out there. I want to I want to debate with you, but okay, we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll give you that perspective. Ken, what's something you're watching? And just clearly on uh, just to be clear on the marijuana, you're talking about tweaks to the medical marijuana law or you're no, talking I'm about, talking the about the, realization the of the promises yes. of the adult. Yes. So we've got five, six dispensaries. We were supposed yeah. to have a robust adult use program. We don't. Yeah. We've got a lot of dispensaries, just most of them are illegal. Oh, yeah. none of them are legal. Almost none of them are legal. But yeah. When Liz, when state Senator Liz Kruger was on this show a, a few weeks ago, she talked about the specifics of the things they're trying to get into the state law, probably in the budget deal that will change enforcement. Yes, exactly. So she yeah. went through some of the list of those things that they're trying to get through. She said it could be before the budget, but I knew that that wasn't going to happen. But um, but they're looking at least at, at trying to re-empower localities, especially New York City, around enforcement against the illegal shops. And then in terms of getting the legal shops, you know, that that seems to all be in motion. They got, got to put the foot on the pedal. Um, Liz Benjamin, we have to say goodbye to you. We'll talk with Ken Lovett for a couple more minutes. Liz Benjamin, uh, Marathon Strategist, thanks very much for the time. Uh, wish we had a couple hours, but that was a lot of fun. Thank you. Yeah, Kenny, I'll talk to you soon. Ken, every time I see Ken, I get nostalgic and, it, yes. I, and I feel incredibly old. That's why I was okay. so happy to bring you guys together for at least this <laughs> conversation. So Bye, I'll be well. thank you, Liz. Yep. Ken, what's something you're watching closely here that we should talk about? So I'm looking at energy transition. Um, I think, and, and to be upfront, I do have clients in that space, but I, I think it's going to be interesting because there's a push and pull. New York has one of the most aggressive um, energy transition plans in the nation, uh, but the governor uh, has said, and, and she wants to make it affordable for all. And so there's a push and a pull. Is it going to go far enough from you know those who uh, are some environmentalists? But the governor also recognizes that for it to be successful, it needs to be uh, it, it, it needs to be affordable. Because if people can't afford heat pumps and they can't afford, or, or, or prices go up too much too quickly, then it's going to defeat the purpose. So I'm looking at that. I'm looking at charter schools for no other reason than I, I'm always interested in the fight over education. And mm. uh, from what I've heard, there's barely been any talk in the budget negotiations with uh, regarding charter schools. Um, that is a third rail issue as well because of the teachers unions, the powerful teachers union. Uh, and if you're already fighting over bail reform and housing uh, reform, then my guess is charter school is not going to come along. And the other thing is more of a political one. But, you know, one little known, little focused on uh, aspect of the recent Siena polls has been that the Democratic Party as a whole in New York is losing the center. And if you look, Democrats are much more optimistic about the direction of the state, about the state leaders, the governor, Senator Schumer. But and Republicans obviously are not. It's the exact opposite. But among independents, uh, you know, people who are not enrolled, who are enrolled uh, to vote, but not in a party, their numbers are highly negative on, on direction mm -hmm. of the state and on the uh, Democratic leadership. 
And and I think that's something to watch. And I think certainly given some of the uh, issues the governor is focusing on, I think she's recognizing that. Now, will yeah. will she be pulled by a more left legislature um, and will she be able to address that? But I do think, you know, we saw the losses in the House races. We saw the losses on Long Island. Um, I, I do think that's something to watch. And these polls are showing it. It just hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet. Mm, good points. Good points. Let me just touch on a couple uh, things with you. One, as far as I'm concerned on the charter schools, it's always felt to me like the compromise was going to be, if the legislature will compromise at all, is going to be let the uh, issuing authorities reissue these zombie charters. So you get you know another couple dozen charters that could be reissued that were issued in the past. So it's not raising the cap. It's charters that were issued in the past. They can be reissued because the schools have closed for whatever various reasons. Uh, that that always seemed like a potential compromise to me where the legislature can say, well, we, we didn't really raise the cap. We just sort of let are letting them reissue these, quote unquote, zombie charters. But I don't know that they're going to play ball on that at all. And it, again, it's an issue. I, 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 has the governor done more than maybe one public event talking about it? I, I, you know, it's it doesn't seem like it's something she's trying to really capitalize on public support for where there is a lot of support, especially in communities of color in New York City. Um, so that one is a, will be very interesting. And maybe she's just going to say to the people, you know, people who support charters, I couldn't really focus my my efforts on this right now. But it is the type of thing, to your point, uh, and a lot of what we were discussing earlier, it is the type of thing that can be done post-budget, but then she loses so much of her leverage. So it's unlikely there. And I and I, I just if they have if they have to swallow the legislature, if they have to swallow Bail reform, and if they have to take on a housing piece, I just don't see them doing it. The teachers union yeah. would be apoplectic, and that's you know a big uh, sponsor of them, you know, yeah. contribution-wise. And and I also think that there is a real disconnect in a lot of ways between the legislative Democrats and the communities of color you mentioned. I, I think there's more support within those communities. But the legislators, for whatever reasons, and, you know, you can talk to the union influence, um, I, I think they still haven't gotten them. They haven't gotten on board with charter schools. That was the only reason they authorized it. It was part of a pay raise deal under George Pataki. Right. And and so they, they authorized it, but they've regretted it ever since. And they've tried yeah. to do as little as possible ever since. I mean, some of the most fascinating Andrew Cuomo era battles were around charter schools. We won't get back to um, I totally agree with you on all the climate and energy stuff. Way too little attention on this, you know, just broadly. There's, there's a bunch of news coverage, of course. I mean, uh, but uh, again, just something that's got massive implications for the state. And and there's so many pieces to it. Cap and invest uh, and down the list, you know, gas ban and new construction. Uh, so many big, big things that came out of, of course, the Climate Action Council that had to develop a, a proposed plan. Uh, out of the state's big climate law passed a few years ago. Um, Ken, I can't let you go without touching on the MTA. I don't know, you know, if if at what liberty you feel like you can speak as a former senior advisor there. So just say whatever, you know, is comfortable for you. But what do you, um, you know, what do you sort of either think will happen or should happen around some of the pieces, the big pieces related to the MTA? The, the governor has a funding plan. The state legislature sort of has a funding plan to fill the MTA's operating gap. Then the legislature, some of the legislature has, you know, bigger plans around free bus routes with, you know, pilots of free bus routes, uh, six minute service of, of the subways, you know, and ways to get there. What what are you most concerned about there or think should happen? What are you watching on the MTA? All right. To be clear, I do not uh, appear or represent any clients regarding the MTA. Um, but I would say, obviously, I do think there will be a bailout package. Will it be the governors? Will it be the legislature? Will it be a combination? Probably a combination. Um, but um, that hasn't gotten a lot of discussion as of yet. I mean, they've talked about it, but not in great depth from what I'm told, because all the focus has been on those top two issues we spent so much time talking about this morning. Um, I spoke to someone in the assembly who doesn't think they're going to get the free buses. Um, and it's a hard time to do it. It's a hard time. And I get the reasoning behind it. But if, if the agency is looking for a bailout, if the agency is looking for, um, 
you know, for for years of deficits, it's hard then to say, even if you're going to supplement, you, you never know what's going to happen because the state's going to look for deficits, uh, looking at deficits too. It's hard to then say offer a free service. Um, I think they're coming to the realization that that's likely not going to happen, at least this year. Mm, interesting, interesting. But they do need money. Um, and, 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 you know, I know Jana Weaver, the MTA chair, has talked about uh, supporting the governor's plan. Uh, Carl Hasty more or less said, "You run the trains, and you know we'll we'll, we'll deal with the uh, you know the the legislature and governor will deal with the funding stream." <laughs> yeah, I mean, listen. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this is also one of the biggest issues. We didn't touch on this, um, but the dynamics between Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul have been, for the most part, just so incredibly uh, positive. And this seems to me like one of the issues where, um, you know, I'm sort of watching politically, which with a lot of impact on policy and fiscal issues, how this winds up, because he doesn't want her proposal to go through for $500 million more per year from the city kicked into the MTA's operating uh, funding. And it's among a series of other cuts, cost shifts, proposals that she put out there that he gently, you know, mostly gently has pushed back against, but with a lot of concern. And so that's one dynamic to add to the many things we've discussed uh, here that I'm really watching is what's this state budget going to look like for New York City's fiscal future? What's it going to look like in terms of the city's responsibility for the MTA? On one hand, the governor's proposal asked the city to kick in 500 million more per year for the MTA. And then on the other hand said, oh, we're going to include money for asylum seeker services. But it's like, well, thanks for that. But you're taking it right back with the MTA. So I could understand the mayor being a bit frustrated there. So that'll be a that'll be. And and those are just some of the fiscal matters. The mayor wants the governor's budget uh, bail proposal and then more. He seems supportive, although not out there on it, of the housing plan overall. Again, missed opportunity, I think, for her to be out there with the mayor, even in the five boroughs, uh, sort of ticking up support for it. Um, and there's a variety of, you know, other some somewhat kind of lower profile issues. So so that that dynamic of Albany and the city, I think, will be very interesting in the final budget. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I don't think we're at the point where the relationship is just going to blow up. I don't know what, uh, they, at least publicly, they're doing and saying all the right things. They're always going to be in a situation where New York City's interests aren't don't always align with the state's interests. That's just how it is, and the state has the power. The um, you know by law, by constitution, New York City is a creature of the state. And that's what frustrates so many mayors over the years. Obviously, we saw an extremely toxic relationship between uh, uh, Cuomo and de Blasio, but that wasn't the first toxic relationship before, you know, mm-hmm. that, that governors and mayors have had. Uh, it may have been the most extreme and probably the only story in 25 years in the Capitol I wish I could have back when uh, de Blasio was elected. I interviewed all these people on the record who knew both of them really well, who said this is going to be different. They may have policy disagreements, but they're friends first and blah, blah, blah. And and I wrote it because it was seemed true at the time. But boy, did that go south. But I do. I don't. But that's not on you, Ken. That's what the people were saying about the relationship. So. But boy, was that story wrong. (laughs) They were wrong. That said, um, I don't see it becoming as toxic. I think it's in both their interests to work together when they can, but that doesn't mean they're going to be lockstep all the time. And so uh, I do think how the city gets treated in this budget is something worth watching. Yeah, no. And, and the, um, you know, even going back to the charter school question, the mayor sort of sheepishly has said he's a supporter of charter schools, seems to be giving a blessing to the charter cap being lifted. But he says also, hey, because of a prior state law, we're forced to pay rent in private space if we can't find public space for them. So, Governor, this is more of a priority for you. Send us more funding for rent for the charter schools. So there's, you know, there's nuance and there's and there's fiscal things attached to even policy agreements. So a lot of these things are going to be really interesting to see where they wind up. And just final, you know, thoughts. This is the other thing just for the general public listening is. And, you know, this well, so just want your final reflection on this. Whenever the state budget gets done, they wind up passing it with almost no public review of what's in it. 
the legislators themselves, very few of them have had the time, even if they wanted to, to read through it. They know the gist of a lot of the uh, agreements that have been reached in broad strokes and maybe you know some of the top line specifics. But what typically happens in Albany is whenever they can get to the final agreement and they've hashed out the big areas of discrepancy and the staffs have gone over you know the details in a way that people feel sufficient in the governor's office and in the two majorities of the legislature, they just the governor issues messages of necessity to waive the otherwise required waiting period for bills to age, and they just pass the things through. They have a little debate, you know, on the floor. Um, is there is is that emblematic to you of sort of a, a broken Albany policy that is just lacking in sort of due process for the way that these things should go and the right level of transparency? Is it just sort of part of the belly of the beast? Um, is there anything about sort of the uh, the way these things are done that you reflect on sometimes from your experience? Uh, final thoughts on the sort of way these things get passed in the end, these these grand bargains that get rushed through. It's the old expression, no one likes to see how the sausage is made. And mm. really what happens is there's a, a bill, a budget bill called the Big Ugly, where all the late deals that they cut get stuffed into this one bill. And the idea behind the message of necessity had always been pass it quickly before people can unravel the deals, before advocates in the public see it and say, no, that doesn't work. Inevitably, you're always going to find things weeks after the budget that you didn't know was in there uh, that raises eyebrows. Um, for a while, they were using the messages of necessity less and less. Now, with the budget two weeks, and I spoke to someone this morning, actually, who didn't think it's going to get passed this coming week. Maybe yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. I think they're going to do have to do another extender. So they may use the argument that if it's really a month late, we need the message of necessity to get the budget in place. That'll be their argument. But yeah, it is. I mean, but the realist, the realism is they don't want the public to see it. In case the deals unravel, if they start putting pressure on the lawmakers, they know this isn't acceptable. And then all of a sudden, you know, agreements uh, start unraveling. So uh, that's been largely the reason behind it. Uh, and, and really, you're not getting a ton of time anyway. It's a three day wait <laughs> from the printing of the bills. You have three days that it has to sit before you can vote. So um, uh, you think they can at least do that. Right. You would think that would be the sort of. Uh quote unquote, bare necessity. Um, but the message of necessity comes through and uh, and they they move it much quicker than that. Uh, Ken Lovett, partner at I-Core Strategies, longtime uh, Albany state politics and government reporter. Thank you very much for the time and the thoughts. Great to catch up and talk state budget as we wait for a final deal and we try to get the intel we can get on what's going on and then what's coming down the, the pike. Um, but Ken, thanks very much for the time. Thanks for having me. Be well. 